0: This is Bob Buchanan. I'm here with another edition of On the Level, and tonight I am traveling and I am visiting Waukegan Lodge Number 78 in Waukegan, Illinois, and I'm interviewing Robert Johnson. Robert, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself and give me your name, your home
1: blue lodge, and any
0: offices and titles you have connected to that lodge.
1: Sure. So, Robert Johnson, um, I... I'm a member here at Waukegan Lodge number 78. uh, Joined back in 2007 or 2008. Uh, Went through all the chairs um, over the course of eight years and uh, was the Worshipful Master in 2014 2015. Um, That same year, I became the District Education Officer and continued that a second term. And um, two years after being Worshipful Master, I was. uh, uh, honored to be a district deputy grandmaster for two years, and recently retired doing that. And I've been the secretary since 2015 or 2016 as well. Uh, so that is where we are today, and uh, I'll be retiring, actually, from the secretary's job here uh, in one month.
0: And you also run a
1: podcast I do, yeah. I have a Whence Came You podcast, which I started producing back in 2011 or 2012, I think it was. Um, we'll come back to that. Don't get too many details. Sure, away. yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs>
0: and Are you also involved in uh, another podcast or another group interview?
1: Yeah, I am. So I'm also one of the uh, co-hosts of the Masonic Roundtable, which is a podcast. And if you're listening to this in like 100 years, what is a podcast, right? <laughs> Um, it is a way to disperse these interviews, these kinds of uh, audio recordings, over the internet, well, we, you know, um, and we have a lot of fun doing uh, the Masonic Roundtable. Uh, five Masons from around the country, we get together, we talk about things, uh, Masonic nature, and uh, kind of get the perspectives of everybody involved. And uh, I said had a short-lived uh, series Uh, called Masonic Radio Theater, which was pretty cool, and uh, did another web series called Masonic Curators. I I did a lot of stuff. Do you write
0: for Midnight Freemasons too?
1: Yeah, yeah. So I started writing for the Midnight Freemasons a few years ago. I've been the managing editor there, um, overseeing and editing papers for all of our contributors for the last five years, I want to say. Originally founded by Todd E. Creason, who is a wonderful author in his own right and uh, has his own blog, that um, he just got so busy Masonically, he couldn't handle the Midnight Freemasons either. So he basically said, I'm going to shut it down or unless somebody takes it over. And I said, well, I'll do it. (laughs) So he said, okay. (laughs) So So uh, let's
0: get back to that. But I want to start talking a little bit about your story and your journey through Freemasonry. Do you remember the first time you ever even heard of this thing called Freemasonry?
1: I do. Uh, I don't. When I think back on it, it wasn't necessarily. I knew Freemasonry. I didn't necessarily know what it was, other than maybe a secret society or something. Um. I had a great friend of mine, Yukatero Hamana, who was a Japanese artist. And one day we were uh, playing guitars, and he brought this book over. He said, "You." You'd really like this. This is really neat. It's got some really cool old tapestries and things. And he knew I had an, uh, an interest in like Egypt and Greece and things. And he said, I think this is kind of relevant. And I said, okay, let me take a look at it. And it really all it was was a, a book that had a bunch of uh, tapestries or uh, like almost like large rug blanket type designed um, pictures. You know, pictures that are on these these cloths that were woven together. And one of them showed part of one of the degrees that we do, one of the dramas that we unfold. and I thought, "How wild is that? I got to look these guys up and uh, I remember looking them up on Wikipedia uh, to the chagrin of my professors and, and using <laughs> and using Wikipedia as a source as we're told never to do. Um, yeah, that was that was my first introduction into Freemasonry was tapestries. How how
0: soon after that tapestry did you start pursuing it or looking into joining?
1: Sure. Uh, I would say probably within that whole first month, I would be at work, and every second of the downtime, if I wasn't on uh, Friendster, if you you don't recall (laughs) Friendster, it was one of the first social networks, Uh, then I was on MySpace, and if I wasn't on MySpace, I was on Wikipedia reading about Freemasonry. Uh, I, I managed a photo lab, and I had a lot of downtime, and I was in uh, Southern California, I was working out of Irvine, California there, and uh, there was a there was a lodge temple in Orange, California at a place called Orange Circle, and they had one of those old, huge neon signs on the side of the building, and I, I went up to it, and I remember reading the sign that said something really kind of ominous, or at least it sounded ominous at the time, it was like, knock three times on the third Saturday, and... We'll come to the door oh, cool. and greet you. And, and I was like, what is all this? I'm sure it didn't say that at all. It just seems like that's what it said. I remember it said something about the third. And I think it was just their meeting date. But over time, you know, memories change. So I totally wussed out. And I was like, no way. This is this is not happening. Uh, I don't think I'm going to do this right now. And uh, fast forward three years after my wife, um, my wife and I had our first son and I sent an email of all things to the Grand Lodge of Illinois. They sent me an email back saying they'll be in contact soon and that's when I got a call from uh, worshipful brother Carl Donahue who is the past secretary of Waukegan 78 and he said, hey let me meet you for lunch. I said okay. We went out to lunch a few times. My boss was really cool with me leaving at that time. I worked a a pretty grueling blue-collar job where I was really busy all the time, no time off, no nothing. Uh, a lot of guys know about that. <laughs> and uh, my boss was just incredibly cool about it, so he let me go. And we went to lunch a couple times, and I signed a petition, turned it in, and the rest is kind of history. Uh, I got my first degree um, on the same day uh, my son's birth, my son's first birthday. So I went for my first degree on my son's first birth first birthday, which you might think my wife would have killed me for, uh, but actually, because the our, our party was the weekend before, I was clear to go. <laughs> so
0: how, how long was that time from when you got introduced to the tapestry till your first? you got your first degree?
1: Let's see. 2005...
0: Two years. Two years. Okay, so it was a two-year searching period, kind of.
1: Yeah, I would say I picked it up, and then I set it down, but was con—I was continually being reminded, somehow, you know, call it divine providence or what have you—to join, kind of like a dormant calling of sorts, I guess. Um, Every time I would turn on the telly, you know, I would see these. Uh, Secrets of the Freemason shows or, Mm -hmm. or, you know, whatever. And I was like, man, like, I know that there's more to what's going on than what they're showing. There has to be. And sure enough, you know, after joining you can confirm that. You know, you can't, you can show everything you want to show on TV, but it doesn't replace the experience. So did you have any familial history that you knew of when you joined? Not at all. It was actually kind of... Depressing. Uh, everybody's <laughs> like, I'm a Lewis. I'm a Lewis. If you don't know what a Lewis is, you know, you're a line of Masons. Maybe your grandfather, your dad, now you, or whatever that case may be. I had nobody. Um, my dad uh, was a raging alcoholic, and um, was a bricklayer by trade. And one day, I asked my grandfather. I said, you know, was Dad a Mason? Is yeah, he's a Mason. I was like, like a Freemason. And so my grandfather comes from this age, you know, uh, he's very, he's a bartender, uh, attended like, you know, social dinner clubs and uh, that kind of thing back in the 60s and 70s. And so he's very familiar with the Masonic fraternity as, as it is. He just wasn't a, a member. And he said, no, no, your dad wasn't a Freemason, he's just a bricklayer. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> I was kind of bummed out to learn that. I said, okay. And, uh... Then later on, um, after become a mason, I think it was maybe five or six years down the line, I had I got on ancestry.com and I started doing uh, my research and pulling in names and uh, genealogies. And within like I don't know twenty minutes or so, I think I had gone back. We were really well documented, thankfully, um, church records and all that. Like we went back to. Gosh, 1560 or something within a matter of 25 minutes. Wow. Um, yeah, it was pretty incredible. but it, it, my my dad is Fred uh, was uh, Charles Johnson, and then his dad was Fred, and then his dad was uh, Horace, and his dad was Gilbert Lafayette. and Gilbert Lafayette uh, Johnson was uh, down in uh, Arkansas in Pope County, Arkansas, fought for the Confederacy. His brother died of a, of a dysentery on the battlefield and mm-hmm. just some wild history there. And, and one day I got a little one of those leaf alerts in my in my uh, email from ancestry.com and it said, "Hey, somebody added a picture of Gilbert Lafayette." And I was like, "Oh, cool." And I clicked on it and it wasn't a picture of him, it was his gravestone and there right at the top of his gravestone was a big old fat square and compass. Oh, cool. And I was like, "I'm not the only one." <laughs> And it was just the coolest thing to, to get because like, all I know is that it was my great 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 granddad and me, like I, nobody in between joined the fraternity and. Uh, That's so still the, a cool connection, though. Very, it's awesome. It was very cool, and it, the unfortunate part was I was looking for records on him. I wanted to know his dates and everything, and I got a, I got a email back from the Grand Lodge of Arkansas saying that, you know, there had been some fires and. All mm. those cards—they haven't even attempted to do anything with it. They're just in boxes. And he said, "If you ever come down to Arkansas, you know, I'll let you in the records room and you can sort through it and see if you can find <laughs> it." It's like, well, maybe I'll do that when I'm retired. Yeah, right. Um,
0: Same thing when I was researching my grandfather from Indiana. They're like, "Well, we don't really have anything organized because his lodge closed and closed and closed, and some got lost and some got stuck in storage." So they're mm-hmm. like, "Well, if you come down, you can go through stuff."
1: Yeah, it's it's kind of crazy and <clears throat> and. For me, I was kind of disenchanted because I guess I'm a little spoiled. Illinois has a really nice system where I can go into the old card file. It's all scanned, and, like, everything is a PDF listed by last name, and it's kind of a dream. I can just click on it and open it up, and, oh, yep, there he is, you know, and I can read the initiation dates, his dues, or whatever they were that that they had on the old system, card system, and those go back, you know, to the early 1900s. They don't go back into the 1800s or anything, but uh, for what they are, it's pretty incredible.
0: So what it, So, you've been a Mason, what would you say, since 2007?
1: Yeah, I think 10 years. I think this year, it's always kind of retro, so on my dues card it says has been a Mason for 10 years, but if you do the math, it's like 11 it's years. It's 11 years.
0: So in 11 years you. it sounds like you've already done a lot. You've been participating a lot. Mm-hmm. What is it that keeps you so excited and interested in Freemasonry?
1: I think masonry itself is a serious endeavor, and I take it certainly. I think by no means am I saying that I take it more seriously than you know everybody, um, but I think I take it very seriously to um, to a point where not a lot of people take it as seriously. Um, we talk about the membership being 10% active, and I think I, I fit in that 10%. And, um, and I'm proud of that. And I think one of the things that keeps me really active is um, trying to be an example to uh, younger Masons. And I don't mean uh, young as in age, I mean just young in the fraternity. So you can be 65 years old, and you've been a Mason for a year, that's a young Mason. And I think being an example and showing those people, those brothers, that uh, you can dive into as much as you want to dive into and you can study as much as you want to study. And there's a lot of reward to that. Um, just like when you go to school and you need to study a subject, it's, it's not enough to memorize that 2 plus 2 equals 4, right? Like You want to cognitively know why two sets of two uh, gives you an answer to something and I think within masonry there's not a lot of that study going on we uh, largely um, Albert Mackey wrote a paper called the Parrot Mason and uh, he basically said in the paper that he was depressed that so many masons knew the words but knew nothing of the meaning wouldn't read anything and they could sit there and they could recite ritual to you, and they were the best at it, but they couldn't tell you a lick of what it meant. And I look at the golden age of the fraternity, which is supposed to be like 1900 to 1920, or you know, somewhere within there, give or take 10, 15 years. And it's kind of romanticized, I think, a little bit. You know, we say it was amazing because we read about it being amazing. But when you sit back and you look at the minute books and you see the same amount of participation back then as it was today, uh, it's just not, I don't think it's true.
0: You can read some of Albert Pike's uh, commentaries and speeches and he'll talk about uh, the problems in Freemasonry back in the day. It's this, Nothing has changed. <laughs> nothing has
1: changed, yeah. Um, Milton A. Pottinger, 1904, wrote about it in Symbology, A Treatise of the Soul of All Things. It's a great book. Very um, esoteric for the for the fellows out there into the spiritual stuff, but there are chapters in that book where you read it and you think, "Gosh, when did he write this? Yesterday?" <laughs> um, I mean, literally, there is nothing that has changed with within you know, the formula of, or rather, the the issues that we're facing even today. But I think we have a unique chance today. I tell the story about how, as a, I think Gen X, and Millennial generation, and whatever comes next, Homelander or whatever they're calling us these them these days. Um, I Gen is with another name I've seen thrown out there for the new kids. Yeah, so we've got these generational things, and I'm not a huge fan of those things. I think we're probably more of a, a creature of our environment. But my. My grandfather was an electrical engineer and I grew up with him in the house and uh, taught me you know, that math is not a puzzle, it's a language of numbers and all these different things. And he got me to really understand things differently. And one of the things that he taught me was like, if I want to learn a computer, then just get on there and mess around with it. I'm like, what if I break it? He goes, it's a program, you can't break a program. It's only gonna let you do certain things. I'm like, well, what if I do something? Or he's like, just get in there and mess with it. I said, okay. And um, so when I got my first video game on a computer, I, I bought a controller for it and I had to install like a video card in my computer. And I thought, how the heck am I gonna do this? I'm gonna open up this computer. My mom just spent $2,600 on. It's got a six, gig, uh, six megabyte hard drive. Uh, you know What am I going to do? And so one day she went out to the store, and I just decided to take the darn computer apart and put it together and do it. And I think one of the things about our generation is like, or this kind of span of generation is our ability to get in there and just do the things that we want to do and take advantage of the technologies that we're given. And one of the things that, that really works, I think, for, for Freemasonry today Is technology when we use it appropriately? Like, of course, traditionally, we are always um, who we are. We keep the traditions and we keep these things in this historical, um, you know, our degrees alive and all of this, but there's nothing, there's no reason why we can't also utilize the technologies and things. And so that's something else, and the reason why I stay so active is I I push to um, get the craft. To be taken more seriously, I want it to be um, to focus on what I believe its true mission has always been, which is educating men um, in, in the philosophical. And if if that begats a better human in terms of their charity or their social life or how they're seen publicly, that's fine too. But I feel like. Freemasonry really is about education. And because of that, we have a unique opportunity today. The maxim is, right in the age of uh, technology, um, in the age of information, rather, uh, ignorance is a choice.
0: Ignore that phone call.
1: (laughs) So if ignorance is a choice today, it's sad to me that, like, I get if I hand somebody a book and say, read this, it's hard sometimes for somebody to pick up a book and read it. But if I say, listen to this interview or listen to this podcast or um, watch this movie, it's so much easier for somebody to assimilate that knowledge. And Well,
0: some people, it's really different. People have different learning styles. I yeah, believe.
1: absolutely. Yeah, we used to do a test called a, a VARK test, which was either visual, audio, kinesthetic, or yeah. reading. Um, and we would find, you know, however people... Uh, ingest information differently. But yeah, to your point uh, and to your question, I stay active really because I want to see Freemasonry become what I was told it was. And the only way I can see doing that is to stay active and be an example and to help other people do the same thing.
0: So let me, let me dig a little bit deeper on that. Not just why do you stand well, but what Feeds you. What feeds that curiosity in you, or your soul, or your psyche, or your brain to keep you energized, to stay active and
1: excited? I think, if I'm being completely honest, I, I have a general love of history and philosophy, and an interest in the underlying dogma of world religions. And I think there's as personally, I identify as a deist, so I believe in a supreme being, uh, but I don't necessarily believe any particular um, revealed religion, that, that that a god would, would talk to somebody and, and say, you're my chosen people, or that kind of issue. And so because of that, I've been exposed to world religions, and I study world religions, and I can look at them... Uh, take a step back and, and look at them objectively subjectively and and i see this idea of truth in there somewhere and i think freemasonry as a system of uh moral instruction as it as it stands we teach that truth and i think it's buried in our ritual um through the esoteric teachings of a lot of the guys that have been uh, come before us, right? We've got uh, some very prolific authors that that have written in the past and and today, um, and I get fed. I think intellectually, <clears throat> I I really love reading and learning about the craft, and I like to. I enjoy teaching as well. So if um, I'm invited to go speak somewhere. Um, I'll talk on any number of topics or subjects, um, and a lot of times I get invited to talk on things about you know the esoteric or philosophical elements because I think there's a um, a connotation or uh, maybe a pre determine judgment on certain texts that exist that they're too hard for average people to grasp, or it's people say, Oh, I can't read that book, or I can't read this book. And, like morals and dogma. <laughs> yeah, I mean if you don't like commas, then morals and dogma is not for you. <laughs> so I mean like there's a reason why Art De Hoyos has a, a great addition with his annotations. Um I think that book with annotations is um you know, just a great text and is crucial because people can't just pick up morals and dogma and read it and expect to gain the critical insights that you could gain without having the contextual meaning behind what he's talking about when he wrote the book, when language was quite different. so, um, yeah, I feel like what feeds me really is is the search for more truth and knowledge and seeing how it relates to Freemasonry and, and being able to say to people like, Masonry teaches this one lesson, which is really interesting because these 10 other religions also teach this same thing. And what's even more interesting is that Freemasonry is not a religion, but yet fortifies all of these different systems. And if it fortifies these things with this, you know, similar vein throughout, then we get a lot closer to calling something an absolute truth than something that's maybe prima facie. Uh, I had a, a wonderful philosophy teacher. Um, gee was I can't even remember his name. I apologize. But he explained some of the most uh, awful decisions people could have to make, and I mean, I remember him saying, when he when he described an absolute truth, you know, he said, "What is an absolute truth? You know, whatever this truth is, I can say that this is always true, no matter what the circumstance is. So, if you said a, a firefighter going in to save a, a dog, no matter what the circumstance is, it's always a good thing." If that's your idea of, I'm not saying that's an absolute truth, but that's an example of something somebody might say. Uh, Prima facie truth would be um, to say something. Well, my professor actually used the example. He said, it's the Holocaust. You are a mother. You're holding a crying child and you're hiding in a wall with 20 other people. If you get caught, everybody will be executed. You're a mom and you've decided to suffocate your child to save everybody else she did the right thing absolute or prima facie and that was his example and everybody Whoa, in that everybody <laughs> everybody in that room would just sat back and you could hear the crickets because nobody wants to answer that question
0: right
1: and it's this search for truth and to find value in when we look at all of these things together, however you look at it, whether that's economics and you're trying to figure out the right things or why things are working in a certain way and puzzling um, over, you know, why, this is terrible that I'm going all the way to, you know, from a Holocaust story to pizza, but, you know, why is pizza square cut in the Midwest versus triangle? Is it because it feeds more people in, a, in an, an industrious um, middle-class type setting of the industrial revolution? You know? You're feeding more people with with more uh, slices of pizza. It's a psychological thing. We're looking for answers any way we can find them, whether that's analytically, uh, w- whether that's trying to understand the psyche of people. It's a search for truth, real truth. And I think Freemasonry is a really good piece of ritual. It's a, a, a ritualistic society that maintains uh a certain standard level of a universal teaching, I guess, that touches on every world religion that's out there at some level. And I think that's, of course, partly due to the foresight of Renaissance and Enlightenment thinkers who essentially uh, influenced and eventually wrote what would become our, our third degree and and to take that off into a, another realm to talk about, you know, York right or Scottish Rite or additional degrees. It, it's all a offshoot of rights in general, as in R-I-T-E-S, whether that came from Eleusis or Dionysian or Greece or the Egyptian black Rites or so you know, whatever. Let me interrupt you and go back to something yeah. else you
0: said earlier about one of the reasons you stay... One of the things you like to do is be a good example. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I like to ask is who are, the, who are the influences and good examples for you when you were coming up to this point in your Masonic life?
1: Such a good question. Um, the guy who really uh, kicked me in the butt, um, I didn't need a whole lot of kicking in the butt. Like I guess there is a, an expectation. I was told there was an expectation and uh, I I take that seriously. I wouldn't, I wouldn't ever have wanted to come in and said, here's my petition. Here's my money. Give me a first degree. And then wait for somebody to drag me across the finish line. I, I feel like maybe that to me, I would feel like my, my image or my reputation is kind of on the line there. Um, so the guy was named Curtis Carmen. He's a past master and he was probably 70, 71 or 72 years old and he was my my intender or my mentor. And the guy was so impressive in terms of not only what he knew in the ritual Uh, he didn't use, so in, in Illinois, we had these little catechism books that had all everything in there, but the obligation and, uh, things. And so he didn't need that, but I had that. And he would ask me the question and I would give him the answer. And if I needed to, of course, I'd look at my book and sometimes he'd stick his cane up and he'd slap the book out of my hand. He goes, you don't need it. You know, you just, you just said it a minute ago. And I would think and take my mic. He's like, I'm not cared. I don't care about time. I'll wait for you to remember. And I won't prompt you. I'm like, okay. And we would sit and we would do 10 to 15, maybe 20 minutes of ritual instruction that way on my catechism. But what made Curtis different was um, a human connection, I think, that we had was kind of dynamic. He came from a very different background. He came up from Kentucky when he was like six, six years old. Um, and nobody would hire him up here in Waukegan because uh, he didn't. He was born without a thumb uh, on his right hand. So I'll tell you that since 1916, it has been illegal to smoke in a lodge in Illinois. Curtis could uh, hold a cup of coffee, smoke, and take his inhaler all in the same hand in 30 seconds. (laughs) Wow. Um, But the guy was so much, had so much knowledge, but like world knowledge, not, I mean, of course he could tell you math and science and history and all that stuff, but he was such an inspiration in terms of who he was and how honest he was with himself. I'd never... I never knew honesty that way until I met him. And I was 26 or 27 years old. Uh, And to give you an example, he said to me, um, he had two daughters. And uh, as a millennial growing up, I have no... um, and in Southern California, I grew up in a very diverse community. There were African Americans, Asians, Hispanics, and Curtis said to me, "Oh, I know I'm racist." That's what Curtis said out loud to me. We we got to talking about things. We were talking about Prince Hall uh, lodges and uh, and the like, and he said, uh, "It's like, well, you know, it just wasn't that way back in the day." He goes, "And I know I'm a racist." He goes, "But the thing is, is." I know I'm that way because where I came from, it's deep in there. And I try not to let that ever come out. Like, I know it's wrong. And he would, he'd like almost shame himself and talk about it and say, like, he's like, you know, I pray to God all the time that you just take these thoughts out because I know they're wrong, but they're in there, you know? And it was just like this, this kind of honesty that, that you don't hear anywhere. Um the like he would acknowledge things and and just make me feel like if I could only be so honest about anything, you know, like we're we're always so self serving and we're always talking about ourselves as we're we're the best like we're already the best version of who we're going to be. Yeah.
0: It's projecting an image.
1: Right. And 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 so he showed me, I think that it's okay to be honest about your shortcomings with yourself and to say those out loud and to to be vulnerable and talk about those with our brothers. And I thought how different that was from the way I grew up, which was in a uh, Italian Catholic home with my grandparents. And, uh, you know, in an Italian home, like we just yell at each other and five minutes later, everything's okay. But (laughs) at the same time, it's a very conservative household and um, nobody talks about you know uh, what anybody uh, our own personal shortcomings i mean sure we talk about everybody else's problems at the dinner table (laughs) but our own right and uh, so it was just very different and i always respected him for that and for pushing me and uh, i think i did my first degree he got me through my catechism in three weeks and then I got my second degree the following stated meeting night. So we had a stated meeting and then they they ran through business in about 15 minutes and then I got a second degree. And then it only took me two weeks to return the second degree and I got my third degree later. Um, and then we all kind of pooled our money together and uh, we bought him a lifetime membership um, for his servitude to the lodge. And then it was not maybe six months later that I got a call. He was in the hospital. I went to work that morning, got off work, and then uh, I went to go see him in the hospital. And we just chit-chatted a little bit. Nurse came in, did his, like, little asthma test where she would, uh, you know, put the little meter in his mouth. He'd blow real hard. It would measure how his lung capacity was or whatever. And uh, he started to kind of close his eyes a little bit. And I was like, uh, I think it was Curtis and, uh, a fellow who was at Lodge tonight, Leonard Siegfried, uh, he's another older gent, and uh, we went to go see him, and like I said, sat there, talked a little bit, and uh, he started to get a little tired or whatever, so we're like, all right, Curtis, uh, he's like, yeah, I think I'm going to take a nap. I said, okay. So we left him on good good hands and everything, and uh, the next morning I got a call that he had passed away like at 3 in the morning. And uh oh, yeah, it was just a kind of a surreal thing. I, I still keep a picture of uh, of him in my office. Um, it was just one that I found here at the lodge where he was standing in the kitchen. And he's got this red maroon coat on while everybody else around him is doing like the pancake breakfast. And he's just standing there drinking his cup of coffee. You know the way he used to hold a cup was first an index finger, like kind of like a claw. He would hold the rim of the cup and he would drink it that way. And so he's just standing there holding this 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 cup, like looking at the camera. I keep that up on my mantle, and whenever like I decide that I'm gonna do something new in masonry, you know I kind of look over the picture and you know maybe I say something. I don't know if he hears me, wherever he is, but uh, he was just a real inspiration in in everything that I do. Masonically, he was the coolest. I, I ended up being his last uh, his last student too, which was kind of kind of weird kind of felt like a lot of weight when, uh, when he passed away.
0: I can only imagine I have yet to lose one of my mentors in Masonry. That would be a tough thing to
1: do. Yeah. And we have, we have so many mentors, you know, like he was the guy who got me in, but then there's the entire line of past masters, some of which I see all the time, some of which I haven't seen since they raised me or, you know, and I, I, I hate that, that I don't get to see them very often, but, uh, I mean, I understand life gets in the way. Any uh,
0: stories you can think of from your time in masonry? That I always like to ask about funny stories because it seems like there's always some crazy stuff that happens. Anything funny you can think of that's happened since you've been in masonry?
1: Yeah, yeah. I remember specifically we had this, uh, this, the master who raised me, his name was Tim Spulak. Tim was, uh, is uh, a hilarious guy and I didn't understand, you know, we're in this fraternity that's so serious and so, um, solemn, but they would never let that impede on, I guess, a good time. Like, order always maintained absolutely in a meeting, but, um, I would always come into the lodge. I was the stu- one of the stewards, so I'd set up get my chair all set to go and I'd be one of the first persons in there practicing some floor work and uh I witnessed him almost every meeting fixing the lights so we have the three candles next to the uh, altar ours are electronic so they're little light bulbs and he would he would always be fixing them and I never really put it together uh, and one of the jobs of the senior deacon here in Illinois is to turn those lights on uh, at the opening of Lodge. So there we are in the midst of ritual ceremony, and the guy comes up to turn the lights on. And he would always have to he pull the little chain, and he'd have to wiggle the light bulbs, and then finally it would come on. And that's when I realized every single meeting, Tim was loosening the bulbs <laughs> so that so that he would have to... You know, so the senior deacon would have to tighten them. And, and so he was always doing that. And uh, I always thought how funny that was, it, his little bit of levity. I remember his first meeting as a master. Or no, I'm sorry, it was like a step-up night. Uh, tonight was a step-up night. Uh, our, our, our officers all took one one chair up in preparation for next year. And I remember Tim was sitting on the sidelines Watching Pat Schumacher, his uh, his senior warden, open the lodge, and uh, Tim had one of those. Uh, it's like a thing called the final word. It's like a little box that you know you'd push, and it would say things or make noises. Oh, okay. Little sound box, and he kept playing all these fart sounds. Oh my gosh! In lodge. In lodge, while we're open. Um, any time somebody would start to talk he'd hit the button and he'd just go oh I'm sorry (laughs) excuse me and uh, like I said I was a young mason and I thought how serious and 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 on point this meeting is supposed to be and Tim is over here with this fart squawking box and and making these noises I, I, I couldn't stop laughing um You know, they're unending jokes, but uh, another another guy I remember was Adam Keenan. Made me laugh so hard. Um, We're both... I'm more of a Star Trek fan, um, but I love Star Wars as well. I won't miss a new movie. Um, Adam, huge Star Wars fan. Uh, The Masons listening to this show, uh, or this interview, will... Might laugh if you're a Star Wars fan. Uh, Adam was the first person who to take a a, a deacon's rod and, and hold it over his head and and kind of scream like a sand person.
0: Oh, I love it.
1: Uh, yeah, and, and uh, then somebody else would say something like, "Oh, the deacons, uh, they always travel in double file lines, to hide uh, their, to hide their numbers or you know whatever." It's just just little things, little jokes here and there. Uh, I've always. Been really cool and, and add a little bit of levity to what we're doing uh, at times when when appropriate.
0: What would you say to and like when we started this out? I talked about hopefully people will listen to this in fifty or hundred years. What would you say to masons listening fifty, or hundred years from now, or people who are curious about masonry and wanted to learn more? What would you say to them?
1: I want to say that. If you're listening in, 50 years, and masonry is around, and we're we're doing okay. Um, I wanna, I would say, a posthumous thank you to every everybody who was in were in the quarries, as it were, for working so hard to keep it, uh, to keep it around. Uh, if it's a hundred years, I would say, don't, don't think for a minute that this fraternity will continue with without you. Uh, it it takes every mason out there. At the very, I mean, if we're talking about ten percent that are really active. I can only assume if you're listening to this, you're at least interested and somewhat active. That don't think that this is going to last without your involvement. And to continue to push to make Freemasonry every bit as great as um, we know it can be. I don't want to put a I don't want to put a title or or a stipulation on what greatness means. But I will just say that if it's, you know, 150 years in the future or whatever it is, and, and masonry is alive, uh, it's because of the hardworking uh, brothers, uh, and in many cases sisters, um, from around the world who perpetuate uh, this moral system that that teaches um there is a dogma I believe you know I I think that it teaches something very specific when we get down to it and I think that people believe in that and that truth is so important it just is not gonna go away and it's not gonna die but we do it can go dormant I guess we don't want it to go dormant we want people to be enlightened to the philosophy of the fraternity uh, just to the to the truths that we give. And I think that uh, if, if we're not around and you're listening to this and this is a historical piece, all I, all I can say is yeah. all I can say is we tried. We really did try and we weren't nefarious. All we wanted to do was to make the world better now uh, and to leave it a better place than, than how we came into it. And uh, we try to do that the best way we knew how with, with the tools that we had. Uh, there's a lot of news today that talks about uh, what we would consider the great men of our past, and we're measuring them to the social, the social justice and socioeconomic standards of what we do today. Um, we have great men in the past that that did terrible things. But we still call them great men. Um, but they didn't necessarily know better. Uh, it's the world they were in. And if and if we are being judged the same way in 150 years, uh, I can only say, like, we did the best we could do with what we knew was right. And if we're doing the best we can do with what we thought and what we believed to be right, um, then I would hope... We wouldn't be judged too harshly, uh, but all we want to do is work toward the utopia. You know, the utopia is, of course, uh, it's a term that means no place. It's uh, it's it's unattainable, but uh, we can try, right? Like we can try to uh, bring about uh, justice and uh, and the rest of the cardinal virtues, fortitude, support, prudence, all those things, but justice is in terms of social justice, uh, economic justice, like the way that term was used when that was written was social justice, um, equality among men, and men, um, not in a fraternal sense, I don't mean to talk about the fraternity, but when I say men, I mean mankind, Um, and it's our job to uplift and, and teach that truth and I hope that we do that. And I hope that in the future, if we're around, we're still doing that. And if we're not around, to know that we tried to do that. And maybe somebody else will, will hear these and put it all together and, and start a new lodge or something. I, I don't know.
0: Well, Robert, thank you very much for taking time to sit down and talk with me. And uh, good luck in all your uh, endeavors for your podcasts and your writing. And, and uh, thanks again.
1: Thank you so much. This has been a pleasure.